You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are sharing conversations about the five adaptive muscles the church must strengthen to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. For more information about these muscles, visit tmf-fdn.org and click Leadership Ministry. Welcome back, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and this is our fifth of six episodes about the adaptive muscles that congregations need to exercise in order to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. So far this season, we have shared episodes about grieving well, discerning purpose, walking alongside, and I hope you'll go back and listen to each of them if you haven't already and and share them with colleagues and with your leadership. I mean, that's really our hope here that the conversations we have on this podcast might help spark conversations that ultimately lead to change towards taking the next faithful step that God is calling you to take. My colleagues, Scott Sharp and Blair Thompson-White are my conversation partners again. Great to be with you both. Hello, Lisa. Good to be back. Scott and Blair, you all lead congregations through a process of exercising each of these muscles. So can you give us a glimpse of the kinds of conversations that you're having Yeah, so I think uh, a way into our work with congregations is first to highlight today's muscle and to give just a little bit background on it as as some some talking points for us as we as we share about how we do this work because really the work that we do hopefully models distributed power. That's that's Mm -hmm. the hope. So when we talk about distributed power, it it really is a shift in thinking. In the typical congregational structure, it's a highly centralized structure. And so this, this is an invitation to move away from that. If we're thinking in the traditional congregational model, that this is more of an empowerment and unleashing of the laity, the, the potential of laity. And so there's an openness to a, a change in where the power is located. And, and the way we talk about this, uh, and, and I invite folks to go back and listen to the very first episode in this series, in this season, uh, we talk about the difference between old power and new power. And that old power is like currency held by few and new power is more like a current. So it's a move from currency where you store it, you collect it to a current where you invite people to participate in it and, and you channel it towards something. Uh, And I just, I love that image. And, and so in our work with congregations, then we're in, we're bringing people together to channel energy towards these muscles and we're having conversation around them. And that's really our, our stance is, is this non-expert approach. And even as facilitators, we're just here to help be a part of the channel and to see where it takes us and to facilitate conversation. And, uh, and I think that's, that's really important. How would you describe what we do, Scott, with congregations? Well, I think it all starts with listening and that is a power in and of itself to give people at the table voice for people to allow or allow people to talk about who they are and what they've experienced. And then to help people recognize the power that they do have. And I think that's what we see, you know, in terms of really thriving congregations when they channel the energy uh, into ministry in some way. And again, uh, you know, we've talked about how these muscles are connected and, you know, our denomination and many congregations have grieved our loss of power because of our numbers and all that kind of stuff. And yet there's such power to be had in local communities, in local congregations, in local contexts. And every time we see it, we go, oh, there it is. It's not, you know, it's not gone away. It doesn't look like it did in 1955, but it looks 
powerful and it demonstrates energy and courage and power in, in today's world. I love what you're saying, Scott, because you're inviting us into a different metric of success. And and that's mm-hmm. really key with this muscle is like success is no longer how big you grow. <laughs> it's it's And we've said this before, and I may be borrowing a line from you, Lisa, but we talk about success is now how deeply you connect with people, how deeply you're connected and how from that connection, then the spirit works and you move into the work that is, that is the church in the neighborhood that is being the church in the neighborhood. So it is, it's all connected here. Well, I, I love how, how you all are talking about distributing power as a way of being right. This is why it's an adaptive muscle. It's not like something you do once, but it is a way of being in the world, which, which means that it's how we show up as individuals, right? It's how we think about how power is distributed in within the congregation and how ministry is done and, and how we show up together. And it's also the church's place in the community and, and what's happening with power in our, um, in our community and in our world. And so we're talking about at the micro level and the macro level when we talk about distributing power. So in today's episode about distributing power, uh, Scott, you interviewed Dr. Jorg Rieger. Can you share with us a little bit about Jorg and your interview with him? Yeah, what a, what a great privilege it was to talk with him. You know, one mm-hmm. of the words that we throw around a lot at TMF is courage. And he has used a pen in terms of courage to write amazing books mm-hmm. and articles about what, what power is about. And he tells this great story about uh, at one point in his career in teaching in a seminary, said, we need to ask more God questions and fewer me questions. And he posed the questions, yeah, but what if our God questions are just me questions in disguise? And, you know, with yeah. that kind of courage to say in front of a bunch of seminary faculty, you know, it's not surprising that we were uh, delighted to have a conversation with Jorg about distributing power. Uh, you know, and his, you know, his resume speaks for itself. He's the distinguished professor of theology, Cal Turner, Chancellor's Chair of Wesleyan Studies, and the founding director of the Wendland Cook Program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt University. So you can imagine the size of his business card. And, you know, and his work addresses <laughs> the relation of theology and public life, reflecting on the misuse of power in religion, politics, and economics. You know, he's just an amazing Wesleyan scholar. And, you know, beyond that, uh, interest in developments and movements that can bring about change and in the positive contributions of religion and theology. So, you know, here's a person who has just committed his whole life, his whole theological understanding of Wesley to how it is exemplified and distributed in the real world. So what highlights stood out for y'all as you listened to this interview and listen to your well, of course, I I'll pick up on the the themes that that Scott has already touched on, but he really uses both Wesley and Jesus. Hello, two of my favorites, right? <laughs> like yeah. throughout the whole interview, he's just tying them together and and letting that lead us in the model of what it means to have distributed power. And it's like, oh yeah, that is who we are as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and specifically in our Wesleyan heritage as Methodists. And I just love that. And he quotes uh, Wesley about how religion must not go from the greatest to the least, or the power would appear to be of men. 
And yeah. um, we could, of course, update that language a little bit. But yeah, we that's exactly right. And what would it be like if we embodied that in how we do community together? That yeah. we really go from the bottom up, that we focus on, it, that it's the alternative, right? That we focus on people. We start with those who are suffering, which again, he points out that that was that was how Methodism started, right? It wasn't about being popular or having the most uh, people in, in buildings or anything. It was about ministry with the people. So it really started with distributed power and how can we get back there and and really flip what is now um, certainly a very American way of understanding success, that that it is the power is at the top and it inflows down. So it's really, really challenging conversation that you had with Jorg. Yeah. And he even, I mean, he, he even takes it to like the whole theological task is one of distributing power. Right. And when I say theological task, what all I really mean is our relationship with God, right. And how we talk about it and think about it. And so he brings it back to like our spiritual practices are a means of distributing power. Read your Bible, think for yourself, connect with others. That's where it starts. You don't have to like wait for somebody to tell you the way you're supposed to think or the right thing. That even the way we approach each other in our relationship with God starts with claiming your own power in that. One of my quotes I wrote down that he said is, I think we're putting too much onto this leadership thing. <laughs> and I, <laughs> Ouch. of course, yes. right? Like we're in the business of leadership. So it's a very humbling thing. But I, his point is, is what you were just saying, which is, we are all empowered to do this work. Like we can all do the work of theology, read your Bible, ask your questions. Like that's the healthiest yeah. approach. And again, I think it's only he can do. He, he turns, he turns things in a way that is so helpful. So he, he refers back to the Magnificat and he says, it's, it's pretty easy to say, let's lift up the poor. It's harder and more difficult for the preacher to say, let's push down those in power. Like, oh man, that, yeah. that hits it where it hurts. Ah, so this is great. It's gotten me excited again. All right, let's listen to Scott's conversation with Dr. Rieger. Hi, Jorg. Thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate your time and look forward to our conversation about the adaptive muscle of distributing power. What a great title. I, I look forward to that myself. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Scott. Oh, you're welcome. And so this podcast is really about these muscles that we've named that are helping the church in the post-pandemic world, and it's grieving well and walking alongside and discerning purpose and distributing power and expanding imagination. And so I'm, I'm remembering all those to keep myself in order. But when you hear that word, that phrase, uh, distributing power, what comes to mind? Oh, ma many things really. But uh, maybe the first thing that comes to my mind, uh, keep in mind, I'm a theologian, systematic, constructive theologian. The first thing that comes to my mind is that we're not talking much about power in theology. Maybe we're talking about God's power and, and the assumption is God can do anything. We're not really going down into deeper understandings of, of what our power looks like and, and also what the alternatives are, because I think that is the big question. So power is a big thing, can be many 
many things. There are forms that are not helpful and there are forms that might be more helpful. I oftentimes start with John Wesley, right? We're all Methodists. So uh, as a Methodist theologian, I remember coming across this quote that Wesley put in his journal, I think in, in May of 1764, that's a long time ago, or he, or maybe 63, something like that, where he says, religion must not go from the greatest to the least, or the power would appear to be of men. Hmm. I'll say that again. Religion must not go from the greatest to the least, or the power would appear to be of men. So John Wesley thought about power, uh, obviously, and he thought there were some powers that were not so helpful and others that were more helpful. So the greatest to at least the top-down power, you know, that's, of course, uh, you know, the power that oftentimes gets wielded by the most powerful for Wesley, it meant, you know, if we proceed that way, if the church proceeds that way, maybe we're just replicating dominant human power and we're missing the power of God and the power of Jesus. Yeah, so it really is tricky to, to when we think about power, especially in the church, because we, we have a tendency to sort of acknowledge that, as you said, that God can do anything, and we believe that, and yet... We acknowledge and we sort of pin to God things that we see happen that we're sort of supportive of. <laughs> that happened because God did that. And then there are other times when we sort of turn the power around and say, oh, well, that must have been a human thing because either it failed or we didn't like the result. So not only is distributing power important, but even again, like naming from whence the power comes has power to it. That, that's the crucial thing for theologians, you know, too oftentimes the assumption is that, uh, you know, some status quo has been created by God, that's God's power at work, and then something else hasn't. And I think that's the big mistake, because as Wesley says, if you do it this way, chances are uh, that you're confusing human power and God's power. Uh, I, I remember uh, years ago, there was some theologian who wrote a book about saying we have to ask more God questions and less me questions. And everybody was really excited about this book, we have to ask more God questions and less me questions. And the Perkins faculty, where I was teaching at the time, was really excited. And I said, uh, what if your God questions are really concealed me questions? <laughs> how, how, is that possible, right, that you talk about God and you're really talking about yourself? Now, in the 19th century, um, especially in, in European uh, you know, thought, there were quite a few critics of religion that had precisely that point. They said religion is ultimately just a projection of humanity. And I think Wesley would agree to the point that a lot of dominant religion is a projection of humanity. But that doesn't mean that this is all there is to religion. Uh, there is an alternative. And for Wesley, I think, in his ministry, the alternative was not to move from the top down, but to move from the bottom up, you know, to start with the people, to start with those who are suffering, to start with those who are struggling. That was the ministry of the early Methodists, right? They weren't out there to impress the nobility. Uh, they were doing ministry with the people, and uh, they were building power that way. So power is not a dirty word, but it's a different sort of power. Uh, you know, if you want to use modern language, you could say it's more democratic. It's more shared. It's something that brings people together. You know, it's something that builds relationships, something that builds solidarity. That's the sort of thing that 
I think, in Wesley's own ministry, really counted. But unfortunately, I think the church has often forgotten about that. And so the church itself now sort of is tried to mimic dominant power. And sometimes that works if you have a wealthy big church that can do it. Uh, but it may not really get uh, the work done either. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't work at all because, uh, you know, a lot of our churches are not in this dominant position anymore if they ever were. And, and now they're trying to figure out how can we even make a difference. Uh, but realizing that power doesn't always have to go from the top, I think, is the start of this. Yeah, I'd love that you said that, and and I, that's a great quote from Wesley. I mean, you know, it's just so great, and it reminds me of the whole, you know, the Philippians hymn about you know Christ emptying himself. Did not think that equality with God was something to be attained, but emptied himself and humbled himself. You know, we see Jesus at the feet of the disciples, washing them, but we also see him engaging the powers of his day. We see him with the lowly and the weak and the mis treated and the hungry, and we see him enact power to feed those folks. So, power really is that complicated sort of miasma of how it gets distributed and lived out. So, I'm wondering, you know, your my suspicion is that you've watched very closely the, the events of our country over the last year, and you've we've seen this where groups in all sorts of fashions, sizes, uh, colors, uh, interests have gathered together to demonstrate power, to demonstrate either they're upset about something or they want some sort of change. As you've watched that over the course of the of the last year or so, year and a half, what does that teach you about what's happening about the issue of power in the United States right now? And then we'll we'll take that a step further and talk about the church. There's a tremendous struggle of power going on. I think uh, everybody can see that. You can see it in politics. I would argue, and that's a touchy issue, but uh, let me just add it. Uh, there's a tremendous struggle of power going on in the church also. And it's not always about what it seems, right? Uh, it seems maybe there's some concern for, you know, um, topics, specific issues, theological concerns, and so on. But I have a strange feeling that uh, oftentimes this is self aggrandizing power where people want to push their own agendas, you know, push their own powers, uh, move up and up in the world and become ever more dominating. And and what we're seeing there, I think, especially, uh, I think, also in, in the political landscape, is that this is moving us beyond democracy. So it's no longer a, ma a matter now of, you know, what do the people want, uh, but it is more and more uh, now trying to get the dominant interests to carry the day. And, and then, you know, uh, you see this, you know, in, in the restriction of voting rights. I mean, how, why would somebody in a democracy, uh, especially in the U.S., where we fought so hard to have universal suffrage, want to restrict that? Sorry for the political comment, right? Uh, why would uh, somebody uh, want to control things as a strong individual to begin with? And whether that's a politician or even a strong church leader, uh, even a strong theologian, you know, I'm always suspicious, even of the theologians that tell you, follow me. And if this is what I was doing here, you know, I say, well, uh, I tell you what to do, you have to do it. Don't listen to it. 
Think for yourself. Uh, do your own theological work. Read your Bible. You know, ask the right kinds of questions. That, to me, is a much healthier approach to theology and to life than to you know this "follow me, uh, I told you so" method that we oftentimes see these days. And that's, I think, what you see in the Jesus movement. Uh, while Jesus had a certain leadership function, uh, you know. Too often, I think, we're, we're putting too much uh, onto this leadership thing, you know, where some strong leader has to go ahead and pull it all out, uh, you know, of, of the ditches. The reality is Jesus himself was pretty clear, right? The one who wants to be the greatest is the servant. Uh, the one who wants um, really to make a difference is the one who has to be there with the people. And, and maybe one more thing here, this goes back to a program uh, for Jesus's ministry, I think, that was written by his mother, Mary. You find this in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the Magnificat where she talks about God lifting up the lowly. This is this power, you know, that moves from the bottom up through Mary, through Jesus, through the disciples, through the early church. But there's another part to that uh, that gets a little tricky. Uh, now, preaching that God lifts up the lowly is not that hard these days, I think. shouldn't be that hard in the church. Uh, but preaching the other part is difficult because Mary also talks about God who then pushes the powerful from their thrones, God who fills the hungry with good things, but sends the rich away empty. And this is Mary, you know, this is the mother of Jesus. This is ultimately Jesus' own ministry, what you see. And so here you have an embodiment of power that moves from the bottom up, but that is not afraid to also uh, call out the problems and uh, to question power where it becomes destructive and problematic. Yeah. Jörg, I, I want to pick up on something you talked about, that this work has to be done in community. And certainly, you know, appreciate you differ differentiate sorting that Jesus was in community doing all this. And, and that's why the church is there too. So, in that sense of community, these muscles that we've talked about, one of the great reasons that they have such a metaphoric power. So we can talk about them in a lot of different ways. But so if in a in a local church, you know, we've got to be in community, what's a way that you see a congregation might be able to really go to the gym and flex these distributing power muscles or a way to to really work on them to build them because i think it's as elusive even though it's so it's right there in front of us but it's elusive to get to how do we do this do you have any sense as a physical trainer for us today yeah, this is a really great question. I, I appreciate that. Uh, if if I can make a little plug here, uh, this is one of my recent books on on Methodist theology: no religion but social religion, liberating awesome. Wesley theology. Um, and uh, this is actually picking up a Wesley quote where at one point John says it, and at the other place uh, John and Charles say it together in a preface that they wrote uh, to to their hymns, to, to Charles's hymns, uh, where they're saying there is no religion but social religion, and there's no holiness but social holiness. And what they mean by that is uh, certainly the value of community. So you cannot be a Christian by yourself. Uh, I, I think most of us were told this. I, I was told this by my mother ever, uh, you know, since when I was a kid. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. But what the Wesleys are doing, and, and what John especially is doing uh, in, in some of this context, is he says, you also cannot be a Christian um, with 
other people who you might not otherwise notice. So this is not just about the church being mm. in community, but it is about the church being in community with the world. Uh, and, and that, I think, is the exciting thing. So you cannot be a narcissistic club that then thinks, you know, are we going to save the world's problems? We have to do this work in relationship with the world itself. And then when Wesley talks about this, you, you'll see this in the book if you uh, want to follow up on that. Uh, he says this includes people uh, that you might not respect. Uh, this might might include people who are in trouble. This might include people who are not even Christians. Uh, so, so you have a very broad community there uh, that your church has to be in community with. Now, there's a practical thing here because you really only find yourself in relationship. I think if you want to know who you are, uh, ask other people, you know, look through other people's perspectives. Uh, this is also what can change you. But this is also the question of God. You know, where, where do you find God ultimately? And I think the mistake that a lot of churches make is they assume that God is primarily to be found in the church. This is why you go to church because you want to meet God there. And well, the reality is that that God is not limited to the church. And the truth about Jesus's ministry is most of it happens outside of the walls of the sacred buildings also, you know, whether it's the temple or the synagogues. It is happening in the streets. This is where community is formed. This is where discipleship is formed. And this is where that new power shapes up. Uh, now, this is, uh, I talked about democracy earlier, but this is really the power of the community that sometimes needs to stand over and against the strongmen. Uh, and I'm using the gender non-inclusive term here, strong men, because it's usually men and oftentimes it's white men, you know, like people like myself, mm-hmm. uh, who are uh, at this moment in history, you know, trying to move us in certain directions that might not be good for people and they're certainly not good for the planet as we're seeing. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm struck by the story when Jesus, uh, after the uh, um, Palm Sunday sort of entry into the into Jerusalem, and, uh, you know, he, he goes to the temple, and he looks around, and he just leaves. You know, it, it's there's no awe, there's no, you know, let's go do something. It's he leaves. And that notion of Finding God not only in the places of historic value, the sacred spaces that we claim, but also, you know, in the street, in the broken places of this world. Well, I wonder, maybe we could sort of focus this a different way. Do you think, what are some elements of church practice that can help us get a better grip on the notion of power? Um, spiritual disciplines, worship, I mean, are those elements that we can use as in local congregations to flex that muscle of starting to identify how, how power is contained and used in a local congregation? I, I think all of that could be very useful. Uh, the, the biggest question that maybe the challenge here is to ask the question of what are we up against? What What is the problem here? What What is the power that has become so problematic? And I think uh, in, in a nutshell, it is this dominant power of the few that tells us it can solve the problems of the many. You know, there's some strong person, maybe a church leader, maybe a politician, maybe somebody in 
you know, the field of business that has an idea that wants to get this done. You know, we could talk about the billionaires in the U.S. society. And the assumption is whatever they tell us to do, we do it. The better way to do it, uh, and this could be a praxis of spiritual formation, this could be theological reflection, this could be Bible study. The better way to do it is to figure it out in community. Now, in order to do that, you really have to get down to where the problems are. So you have to address this together uh, with the people who are struggling. And of course, this is where you have to realize that your power might not be sufficient to fix this. I think a lot of people confuse privilege and power. This is what a lot of good white middle class people um, you know, assume that because we have privilege, I, I have privilege also, right? Because we have this privilege, we therefore have to fix the power to fix things for other people without realizing that we cannot fix this without others, that we don't have the power, and that in order to do anything, uh, we really have to build relationships, we have to build solidarity, and then you have to be very specific, uh, not just complain about power, but look at very specific abuses of power. Uh, one that we've been seeing in this country for a long time is racism. But keep in mind, racism as it is usually benefits the top more than the bottom, uh, even for the racists themselves, right? A white racist uh, who's also a working person might not benefit as much from his racism as the person that runs the business uh, would. A white person who is also a working person might benefit a whole lot more from a relationship to the black fellow worker where uh, they could build power together. Uh, that's an alternative, right? Uh, they could do things together in ways that are very different. This is part of what we're trying to do in, in the Wendling Cook program uh, on religion and justice at Vanderbilt, where we're trying to help average people, you know, working people, middle class people, understand on the one hand that our own powers are limited despite our own privilege, but that there's something that we can do when we all come together. And I think that's a spiritual piece. I, in, in fact, I have written elsewhere about how this is part of the Wesleyan means of grace. This is something else that has been forgotten, I think, in the church. I'd be happy to talk more about the means of grace. Yeah. One one of the things that's happening right now as you talk is that you're talking about other muscles that we've identified here. So one of the ones that we're that we're really expressing a lot is walking alongside. And it is that notion of, you know, knocking on the neighbor's door to get to know them for the sake of understanding who we are together to identify what hopes and dreams and problems and chasms exist in our own community. So I really appreciate you saying that. And then it's what's so exciting about that is that once you build that community, that's where the imagination starts to expand because you know someone different from yourself. It's not just that I'm reliant upon my own privilege to create the solutions. It's this deep relationship that can exist among people that allows for something that we might recognize as the kingdom of God to be sort of birthed. So I really appreciate you connecting the the proximity and and juxtaposition of neighbor to neighbor for the sake of the good. Thanks for doing that. 
that, that to me is is really the key point. I, I think it's the key point of Methodism, uh, by the way. You know, when Wesley in his own day talked about the works of mercy, uh, you know, he was not just talking about the good things we do for others. Uh, he called works of mercy a means of grace, which means that something is coming back to us. So it's not a one-way street. It's a connection. It's, it's, it's a sacrament in that sense. That's what you do when you pray, right? You're not just talking to God. You're also listening to God. So uh, means of grace as uh, works of mercy as means of grace, I think, is a really important theological clue. In, in recent years, I've talked more and more uh, about works of solidarity because it emphasizes the two-way street. It's uh, really talking about how these works of solidarity connect the church, the world, in ways that that ultimately transform us. And, and the beauty here is not just that at the end of the day we then feel good about ourselves, but we are actually actively transformed in this relationship and that's god's grace at work i mean that's why the means of grace here is so important that's different uh, from charity charity too oftentimes becomes a one-way street where we do something for others uh, and it's even different from advocacy where advocacy in some ways uh is more helpful than charity because it addresses, you know, some root causes. It just doesn't try, uh, you know, to give somebody food. It also asks, why is it that people don't have food uh, and do something about it? But but advocacy oftentimes still is a one-way street where solidarity builds the relationship. And once you do that, uh, you know, everything has to be addressed. We, we already talked about uh, racism. That That's a big one. Uh, we need to talk about uh, relationships of genders, right? And then the other one that's really uncomfortable for Americans, I'll put it out there anyway, because that's a lot of my own work, is how do we deal with class relationships when we talk about, you know, people who have power via money and other people who don't? Um, my talk yeah. about the power of money versus people power or something like that. So those are all questions for solidarity. The beauty of it is that most of us, are in the midst of it. So so nobody really uh, is running this show. The 99% are those people who are not always benefiting from the system anymore. And that includes a lot of middle class people. So people in the middle uh, sometimes need to realize uh, that they are struggling too and that their struggles are connected. And then uh, you can solve things together, understanding that this is where God is at work. And it's not just an ethical, moral project. Yeah. Dr. Rieger, as always, you know, your insights into things are just so, I, I love the way you connect history and present and it's all sort of there together. Um, it just makes me imagine, it, it, it reminds me that things have happened before I was born and they will happen after I'm dead. Uh, so that's always a good thing to remember. And so I, what the one question, the last question I want to ask you is this, is Given all this, given turmoil, given power, given the difficulty of it, given the extension, the extensiveness of it all, where do you see signs of hope that this is being addressed, this is happening, that people are regaining traction in living with neighbor and making a change for the better in this world? 
Yes. So this is why I, I sometimes keep talking about the history, because this is something that has happened before. You know, sometimes we think, you know, the past is all, you know, uh, very dark uh, and maybe very conservative and very traditionalist. Uh, that's not the case. You know, uh, there have been many moments, uh, you know, if you just look at the history of the church, where uh, the church was actually helping to build power on the right side. Now, we also have to admit that the church was oftentimes on the wrong side, uh, you know, uh, whether that was the Crusades or the church supporting, you know, uh, fascism in Germany and, and all of that, that is certainly not uh, where it was. But the thing is, there have always been communities in the struggle. And I think this is what we have to reclaim again today. So it's not just a conversation uh, where we're talking about good ideas. Uh, we're really talking about things that are happening. And, and this is where my own theological work, I think, gets informed. If I were telling you, uh, this is my idea and you should do it, you could choose to do it or not. But what I'm talking about is uh, things that are going on all around us. Uh, you know, in the U.S., of course, think about uh, the beginnings of this country as a democracy, where Initially, there were six or seven percent of white males that had the power to vote. That that mm. was American democracy, uh, not very democratic, really. In the meantime, of course, uh, that has changed. None of this is ever given, though, by some enlightened individuals. You know, some people think, well, maybe Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Uh, well, I mean, Lincoln played an important role. Don't uh, want to put that down. But the reality is, this was from communities, abolitionists, uh, people of faith, the slaves themselves, who were people of faith, worked yeah. together to overcome slavery. Uh, then, you know, yeah. women's suffragism. Uh, then you go on, you know, you talk about the civil rights movement. Today, uh, this is, of course, the big question. Where, where are we? You know, we have Black Lives Matter. Uh, we had Occupy Wall Street, which I think was mm -hmm. a much more important movement than a lot of people remember. We, uh, Of course, you could say we have all these diverse movements, but I think they're, they're talking about something that's related. They're talking about dominant power that does not want uh, to share, that does not want to be inclusive, that does not really want to listen to what's going on all around them, that basically thinks we have the solution for everybody. Uh, that's not the way Jesus operated. And I don't think this is the way uh, the people of Israel got very far. Uh, if you think all the way back, maybe one more theological story here. Uh, the prophet Samuel, this is in the book, uh, first, first Samuel chapter 8, uh, there's a conversation uh, where God comes to Samuel, basically warning him and saying, the people want a king. If you get a king, says God uh, through Samuel, well, the king will basically enslave uh, your sons and daughters. The king will make you do things his way. Uh, the king will basically, uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, run your lives uh, in a way that you will not be happy with, that may not be beneficial to you. Uh, so that's not a good idea. Well, you know what happened. The people still want a king. They got a king. It didn't go so well. I think that could be very helpful for a paradigm today uh, in various areas of life. I think it applies certainly to politics. It applies to business also. I think this is one of the things we need to talk about more, the assumption that some people can just fix it. Uh, but it also, and this is where I want to end, it applies to the church, where we get this illusion that either we need another great theologian or two, or maybe some church leaders or some very powerful people that can figure this out, maybe a small group, you know, of three or five or eight. 
that's not going to work. I think this is where uh, we have to look back and, and really learn from our history and see that it could be done differently. It has been done differently and it will be done differently again. Well, I, I'm encouraged when I look around. I think young people have a, a different sense of power, and I'm really hopeful for future generations but that can lead us in that way. And, and, and Dr. Rieger, thank you so much for being with us, uh, for just naming so much that we have to think about. And, you know, my distributing power muscles are sore now after this conversation, and that's a good thing. <laughs> oh, thank you so, so much for, for the conversation and for raising such good questions and, and also for the courage to raise these questions because these are not easy questions to raise. You may get some pushback. I do get some pushback. That's that's the good thing, you know. If that doesn't happen, maybe we haven't done our our theological job faithfully. But uh, I, I, I'm glad to be part of this conversation and look forward to what is going to come from it. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Mark Miller. For more information about Mark, visit his website at markamillermusic.com and find his music on YouTube. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.